Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast from the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the Yamaha R7, your gateway to a new generation of super sport machine. In our first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena rides the new Ducati Monster SP. This is the super duper, really tricked out version of the new Monster. It has all the cool stuff, including full Olean suspension. It's a pricey moto for sure, and that almost puts it into its own class in the upper middleweight range. In our second segment, I chat with film writer, producer and director Mark Neal. Mark is the guy who wrote and directed the series of movies covering MotoGP from the early 2000s onwards. The series started with the iconic documentary Faster, and it ended with Hitting the Apex in 2015. Brad Pitt narrated that one, and indeed, he had a vital hand in getting it finished. Interestingly, the movie is still relevant now, some eight years later, and Mark's stories of how the movie came to be and his interactions with the people and riders involved makes for some entertaining listening. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. So this would be the range-topping Ducati Monster, which also includes the Monster Plus models. And you're, you'll be familiar with the SP designation, which goes back quite a long ways. I mean, I think if you go all the way back to the 888, you know, World Superbike homologation specials, that's, that's where the SP designation comes from. And essentially, it was just sort of the, the top of the line bike. They would throw every performance bit that you could possibly imagine at it and go from there. In more recent years, the SP badging has appeared on a variety of models. It's not just exclusive to the the super sport slash slash super bike categories from Ducati. And it's come into more production models, you know, more, we'll say, typical production models. So we've seen things like the Hypermotard SP, you know, as of as of late. And then of course we still have the super bikes that are are repping the SP badging, like the, the Street Fighter V4 SP, the uh, uh, Panigale V4 uh, SP, SP2, things like that, that add, you know, carbon fiber wheels, exhaust systems, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. And that really lives up to the the pedigree of the old World Superbike homologation special kind of, you know, panache. <clears throat> Now, with the the Monster SP, we're not going as hardcore in that direction, but we're getting a lot of goodies that I see as pretty beneficial for the Monster. It does change the personality of the bike. Uh, 
I don't want to go as far as saying, you know, night and day levels of personality <laughs> alterations, but there is an appreciable difference between a monster and a monster SP. Um, you know, variations on a theme, but there's definitely something there and some some pretty pretty widespread improvements in my opinion. So we have upgraded uh, all lens shock and fork, uh, Termioni, Termioni, sorry, slip on exhaust, updated livery that's meant to mimic the MotoGP race bikes. Uh, we also have upgraded braking system that includes Brembo Stylema calipers as well as a lighter uh, um, uh, caliper carrier and a few other little things just to kind of kick up the the sort of uh, premiumness of an already premium motorcycle. Um, but there's a lot to get into with all those changes because, you know, on paper, it might be, you know, a handful of changes and you're like, okay, well, you know, the base model Ducati Monster Plus comes in at $12,995. <clears throat> and then you have the, the SP version, which comes at comes in at $15,595. And you're like, okay, well, you know, that's a few grand difference. But realistically, if you were to throw, you know, this kind of money um, at the bike in terms of just bolting on your own suspension and things like that, well, you'd probably be spending... Yeah, significantly more than they're charging at retail, for sure. Yeah, and you don't have to, you know, figure it out yourself and bolt it on. So that's what we're going to be getting into. Sure. So, so uh, clearly the motor is liquid cooled. Yeah, same thing that that's been in the the current monster platform that was recently launched uh, just a few seasons ago. Um, so this is the the current gen monster platform. That means we've ditched the steel trellis frame, saving a massive amount of weight, and that really just dropped the 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 wet weight of the monster overall to a fairly low. Uh, what weight and that's that's changed in my opinion that's been one of the, the biggest changes for the platform overall it took a lot of criticism back when it was first announced because of its departure from the steel trellis frame but you know with other brands and with ducati itself we've been there before when panigale was first announced and they walked away from the traditional steel trellis chassis you know purist did squawk the reality is it's a much lighter bike and even more so in this configuration, the SP configuration brings with it several lighter parts that stack up to something like 4.4, a motorcycle that's 4.4 pounds lighter overall. So the curb weight is down to a light 410 pounds. Wow, that is light. It is, it is definitely. <laughs> uh, the engine that you just asked about is a known quantity in the Ducati family. It is that same 937cc Testastretta L twin engine, and so that's the same same power plant that's in the Monster as we currently know it. The Hypermotard 950, the Multistrada V2, and the Ducati Desert X. So it's something that we we know pretty well. It's a very versatile engine. It's got a lot of bark and bite to it, and you know you think about that 410 pounds as well as the fact that this bike makes 111 horsepower and 69 foot-pounds of torque. And for me, that's kind of getting that triangle between power and weight ratio just right. There's a lot of bikes that can do that on the market, especially in the middleweight category. Oh. But the 937cc engine 
in this configuration, um, the monster configuration does really well. It's not an engine that's going to be over the top or overly aggressive, but it's always going to be engaging due to that, that really good torque that's always on tap. And you have, you have it uh, bolted into a very lightweight motorcycle that really takes advantage of every bit of horsepower and torque that you're able to, you know, get from the twisted grip. So in, in my opinion, that's one of those sort of holy trinity sort of, uh, you know, horsepower, torque and power and, and, and weight sort of deals. Um, another bike that comes to mind that's really good in that aspect is the Aprilia RS660. Uh, and then, you know, conversationally, we can also mention the Toronto 660 in the same sort of talking points. Sure. But you get the idea. But yeah, the the engine overall is very strong. As we mentioned before, it's something that we already sort of know from from the Italian brand. But it's it's a good thing to sort of harp on a little bit because you might be looking at the power figures and you go, well, you know, Ducati Street Fighter V2 makes significantly more horsepower, and that's true. Different engine. Um, you know, you're you're up there in that, you know, mid 140s area, if I'm remembering my spec sheet, 150s, something like that. Significantly more horsepower. Yes, it's going to be faster. Yada yada yada. And then you also have the, you know, immensely powerful V4s. In my mind, those bikes are achieving a much different goal than what the Monster SP is going for. This you know, first and foremost, is a monster. It is a road bike that's plenty sporty, but it's a road bike right? above everything else. The other motorcycles definitely have a higher performance ceiling in the sense that they are much more racetrack oriented and uh, quite comfortable at the racetrack, as, you know, we've learned over the years with different iterations of the V2 and the V4, uh, whether we're talking Street Fighter or Panigallic. But I just really enjoy, you know, the power to weight ratio here never really gets away from you. And you never feel like you want more. So you're kind of really in that, in that sweet spot, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, the one thing that you do get with this engine, um, there's no performance enhancement. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, an, an audio enhance, enhancement, we'll say. You have the Termioni slip-on exhaust again it's a homologated slip-on exhaust so you don't have to deal with any sort of you know emissions worries or talks with your local constables anything like that <laughs> it passes you know all all state regulations uh wherever you are in in north america so you'll be good and really it just adds a little bit a little more bark to the 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 engine's bite we'll say um and it's not overly you know, overly offensive. You'll still have a decent relationship with your neighbors. It's all good. Um, it looks clean, has a nice little carbon fiber tip. So it definitely looks the part. Um, but yeah, it it just adds a little bit of zhuzh to the, the whole affair. It does. Yeah, it's a very charismatic looking motorcycle. I mean, it's really, actually, it's a beautiful machine. I mean, they've really done a fantastic job with it. So I think that the term is definitely, you know, just as, as part of that detailing, you know, that, that helped with the looks and, and the charisma that street bike guys are going to want. You know, you pull up at your local cafe or eatery or something and 
all eyes are going to be on this bike that's for sure yeah i mean it definitely helps that it has the golden gilded olin's uh fork and shock without a doubt yeah that's definitely a, an eye-catching thing and um you know obviously an upgrade over the base model and on that note you really are getting some some seriously top-notch olin's gear um and we'll kind of harp on you know it's pricing and it's it's parts equivalents and it's comparables in a minute because with all of this extra stuff that's bolted onto the monster it sort of puts it in a lonely category we'll say you know it is in a a, a class of its own within a very wide class we'll say and i don't mean lonely in a in a negative sense i it, it's just tough to really find a bike on the market that is as specked out as this particular monster sp is so but at the same time it's a fifteen thousand dollar motorcycle so this is true so um you know getting into the nitty-gritty of it you have an olin's nix 30 fork and an stx 36 uh shock obviously the damping and things like that is a little bit firmer now the the big changes here is that when they updated the fork and shock, they also changed the geometry, made it a little bit more aggressive. Not only have they increased the rake, that's gone to 23 degrees, so it's quite steep, even more so than the, the Monster Monster Plus. Um, trail has also shrunk as well, so that's shortened by 0.3 inches down to 3.4 inches in total. Now, the key thing is that you'll want to know because you know throwing numbers at you doesn't really give too much context unless you know all of the other specs it's just more aggressive overall it's also taller um you know because it's able to to get a little bit more travel as well now the seat height has been pushed up to 33.7 inches which is fairly high on the spec sheet but you have to remember this is a twin cylinder power powered engine and we'll say v slash l twin powered uh configuration so it's a very narrow motorcycle i stand at five foot ten inches 32 inch inseam i can still get my boots on the deck fairly comfortably there's also a low and seat height option that you can get from dealers uh, that'll raise it you know i think half inch down or half inch up and then half inch down either direction so it's definitely an appreciable bump in either either direction but that's sort of besides the point now this is the big change for me you know the geometry changes the suspension changes not only has it improved the suspension quality over the monster um you know which is a semi-adjustable suspension setup um so you're getting a fully adjustable olin system that's a cut above the the standard monster already but in my opinion despite the fact that the olin's stuff is a bit firmer damped i feel that it has better suspension actuation so hitting those harder bumps you know going over rough patches it's actually able to absorb that a little bit better now there are things that are on the more extreme end where you will feel it you know that's just the way it is it is a, a pretty stiff chassis overall um you know because the engine is a, a stress member part of the design things like that but I, th I think the Olin stuff is a cut above what you see on the standard monster. And for the price point, you better 
be able to have that observation right out of the gate. Luckily, you do. Um, the big change here that you're gonna you're really gonna feel between a monster and then a monster SP is that geometry change. The bike feels a bit taller. You're kind of pushed over the front end a little bit more just because of all those the, you know that 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 geometry finagling. So it makes everything more aggressive. Luckily, there is a steering damper in case things get too out of whack. And in my mind, it's actually made the monster feel much more energetic. Um, again, I don't want to go, I don't want to exaggerate too much because there's a lot of monster in this monster SP naturally, but it's just taken the monster and made it well, a more athletic monster in a lot of ways. So you've actually raised the center of gravity when you've raised up that suspension and and tightened the geometry as well. So you're 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 shifting how the weight is balanced. But the thing just handles incredibly well. I mean, it just snaps into corners. You know, to use a, a classic moto journo term, you know, the thing is borderline telepathic in that sense. You also have more ground clearance because of the additional height, you know, all, all good things for someone of the sporting mindset, right? The only thing that you are train trading off a little bit is some of that inherent stability that you would probably feel on the, you know, lower center of gravity monster plus. Okay. So, you know, you think about this, the monster SP is higher. It's weight is being distributed a little bit higher. It has tighter geometry. So in certain circumstances, it's not going to feel as absolutely steadfast and planted, but it's easily by far the more energetic and agile bike. Now, for me, when I think about the Monster SP, I really start thinking about it in, in a context where it actually starts reminding me of the, the, the energy that I get from a hypermotard, which is, you know, uh, essentially... It, it it has the the personality of a ferret. It just darts around and it's high strung and and that's what it does. But that's what hypermotards do. And so it is edging in that direction without going too far. So the Monster SP is still a completely livable motorcycle okay. in the sense that it still has a lot of that you know tried and true road going monster character that we we know and love. You know, dating back to the the OG monsters but it's become more energetic. It's definitely taking from that, that hypermotard sort of uh, uh, shelf. It seems like the, the line between the monster SP and the hypermotard is getting more and more blurry. Um, and so I think you've kind of answered that, that, uh, that they are still definitely two distinct motorcycles. Is, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I say hypermotard because, you know, the hypers in the Ducati family lineup, and it's a good reference point if anyone's ridden them. Now, you have to understand that the hyper is offers a completely different seating position, uh, different weight distribution, things of that nature. But specifically, the last hypermotard I, I rode was the hyper, hyper 950 SP, and then we're talking about a monster SP, so that's sort of my reference point. It doesn't go as far in that direction. So don't get too, you know, hung up on that, we'll say. What I'm thinking of as well is bikes like the Yamaha MT09 SP. 
as they have sort of a similar seating position. They have a similar design brief overall because it is taking a naked bike and then spiffing it up. Albeit the Yamaha is at a much different price point and uses much different, uh, you know, class of, of, of parts overall. It, you know, the, the Yamaha just doesn't have stylemas. It doesn't have a Olin's Nix 30 shock, you know, Brembo master cylinders, things like that. It, it's just not up to snuff and its price point reflects that. Cool. But when you think about what each bike does and the riding experience, they're definitely in the same orbit although they come at things at a different direction because, you know, triple cylinder on the Yamaha and then, uh, you know, V-twin, L-twin on the, the Ducati. So at any rate, we're not quite into hypermotard territory, but we've definitely improved the athleticism over a monster. And that's, that's, a, that's a big change. You know, anytime we see these changes with, with suspension, they definitely have, have something to say about it. And in this case, it's it's livened up the monster quite a bit. And it seems like now there is a big differentiation between the SP and the and the Monster Plus as well. So you've got two very distinct monsters, and then it's almost like a step towards the, the hypermotard. You've got the plus, then the SP, then the hypermotard in kind of uh varying degrees of aggression, shall we say? Yeah. And, okay. and and I, I would like to, <clears throat> you know, make a clear distinction that the Monster and the Hypermotard are very different motorcycles and very different riding experiences. Um, but in terms of the raw performance, yeah, the Hypermotard SP and, you know, the, the Monster SP are definitely angling, you know, for that, that, that sport-minded buyer. The Monster is definitely the more uh, street-oriented motorcycle where you can ride with this thing and have it be your, your everyday bike. Whereas the Hypermotard really speaks to a more one-dimensional man, someone that wants to have conversations with his, his local authorities on a regular basis, wheelies, <laughs> stoppies, yeah. and all of those things. Right. Constant. It, <clears throat> not that the, the Hyper is a one-dimensional bike, but the way... I end up riding a hyper brings out a hooligan personality trait in me that usually isn't there. It's just a, an uber aggressive kind of uncompromising motorcycle in a lot of ways. So it's very aptly named then. <laughs> yes. And then the, mo the monster, you know, despite its name is actually a, a very congenial motorcycle in, right. in a lot of okay. ways. It, it's livable. It's, you know, approachable for a wide swath of riders. It's very comfortable, which we haven't hit on the, the seating position too much. You know, you have this red branded uh, seat. <clears throat> we did mention that, uh, you know, it is a bit taller because of the suspension geometry changes, all that good stuff. Um, but, you know, of all the naked bikes in the class, this is definitely, you know, one of the more comfy ones for someone of my height and dimensions. Um, you know seat to foot peg ratio i'm nice and comfy i don't have extreme knee bends or anything like that comfortable riser bars you know it is a naked bike so you do take a lot of wind to the chest that's just the nature of the beast but <clears throat> there are naked bikes that do uh, much worse than it in terms of wind blast the mt09 for whatever reason 
again, I don't have, you know, uh, any computer assisted aerodynamics data to back up my claims on this, but the MT-09 tends to kind of make you feel like you're doing some lat rows when you're on the freeway, you know, at, at those kind of speeds, whereas the monster isn't as susceptible to that sort of thing. Doesn't do what? I'm sorry, I, did, I misunderstood that. Oh, lat rows, sorry. Oh, right, right, lat rows. So if you're if you're doing a rowing exercise. Yes. And you're, and you're strengthening your lats. Okay, interesting. All right, I'm sorry, I completely missed that. So, you know, on a bike with a lot of wind blast, you know, a naked bike or say, you'll feel this on a lot of cruisers as well, especially the cruisers that sort of put you in that clamshell riding position. You'll have to use a lot of upper body strength to pull you forward if you're traveling at, you know, higher freeway speeds. And a lot of naked bikes can do that better or worse than others. The monster's pretty good overall, but you have to understand it is a naked bike. When you start getting into those, um, you know, extra legal speeds that we tested on a closed course in Mexico, um, you know, <laughs> you're going to feel it a little bit. And that's just the way it is. I'm sorry. There's no other way to put this. <laughs> but the trade-off is when you're cruising around, you're having some sport riding fun in the canyons, you're riding around the city. It's nice and comfortable, upright riding position. Yes, the geometry has put you over the nose just a little bit more, but it's all pretty gravy. It's a very comfortable motorcycle from front to, you know, top to bottom, front to center, whatever you want to say. Right. So there's kind of that. Now, on the braking front, we did get an upgrade with the Brembo Stylemic calipers. The rotor carrier is lighter. Also, the fork is lighter. And then we have that lithium battery. So overall, the bike is like four point something pounds lighter comparatively. Um, and a lot of this stuff is unsprung weight. So the, the fork is a lighter fork. So if that's unsprung, that's always good. Um, the lighter aluminum carrier, the flange actually that's unsprung weight. All of that's good for reducing inertia. Again, how much does that help the agility of the motorcycle? I'm not sure. I'd have to do a back-to-back -back comparison. I would argue that the sort of, uh, pretty big geometry changes are going to be the most noticeable, but this is probably helping out. We'll just kind of give it to Ducati on that one. And, you know, the braking performance is as you'd expect from a fully Brembo system from an Italian company, you know, typically brands from over, overseas, you know, European way do really well with managing their, their braking systems in the, in the technology laden sort of motorcycle market that we have now. And of course you have the same, you know, IMU assisted electronics, multiple ride modes available, same as before sport, um, you know, sport touring and, uh, and wet. And then, um, yeah, you know, all the goodies that, that we've come to expect from, from Ducati. So you have multiple cornering ABS modes, uh, you know, multi-setting lean angle sensitive traction control wheelie control an up-down quick shifter and launch control uh, and all of that's programmable from the 4.3 inch dash now these are all the same systems that you'd experience on a monster um more or less save for the wet mode uh, apparently that's a new one but i didn't get to ride it in the wet it does curb power um i pretty much just kept it in sport mode it was dry when I had the bike and 
you know, touring does kind of curb power back, but there's a lot to dig into with the electronics and per usual with Ducati, you can customize these to the end of time. So you have full control of what these do. So you can disable wheelie control. You can disable traction control. Uh, coronary ABS goes down to um, some of the most aggressive modes where it's disabled in the rear. And then you have um, uh, the IMU uh, or the lean angle aspect of the coronary and ABS is disabled just in the front. Um, you know, as you'd see on all of their, their top tier sport bikes. So if you were to go and whale this thing at a track day, you would have no issues with the electronics because, well, that's what they were derived from, all of their super bikes. So you're in good company. Uh, it does have the Uptown Quick Shifter. Uh, it works fairly well. You know, Ducati does make some, some Quick Shifters that are just absolutely slicker than snot. Uh, this one, I think because of the, the twin cylinder configuration, yeah, it's a high-torque high V-twin, so quick shifters are always going to struggle a little bit on those, especially going down. Yeah, it, at lower RPM, it can feel a little less smooth when you're really getting on the gas or just basically above like six grand. Uh, that's when it comes into its own. And then, and then it's, you know, as you'd like from the Italian brand. Um, but no, that, that is a very good observation. Twin-cylinder engines you know, high amounts of engine braking, lots of torque that can make a quick shifter struggle. You know, a good example of that is a uh, early gen super Dukes. Um, so for sure stuff like that, um, or just older Ducati twin cylinder powered bikes. That, right. There's that too. I don't know. I didn't, why I mentioned that, but it is there, it is there and it does work. So that's okay. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not, not bad, right? It does work well. There's some considerations there. Um, that kind of pertain to the engine con configuration. Now, are there bad things with this bike? Um, you know, it is the same 937cc test trend engine. So one of the one of the observations we we can have about it is that it does shed a bit of heat. You know, if you're hanging around in hot weather, then you're you'll probably feel some heat coming off that rear cylinder bank. Okay, cool. You kind of know it. That said, once you get the bike in the wind, that problem takes care of itself. When I had the bike in particular, it was quite chilly. So any of the rides I did through the canyons up in the morning, you know, those weekend mornings, things like that. I actually kind of liked that. It was nice. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. So that's good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess, you know, if you want to put this into a nutshell, it takes all of the aspects of the monster and then essentially just amplifies them. So you have that same riding position that isn't really amplified in any respect, but it's every measurable performance aspect is amplified. Right. So it's just a monster on steroids then. Yeah. And then of course we have to, we have to talk about the, the price. So it, it is above the monster plus, which is $12,995. And then this bike comes in at 15,595. And when you look at the bike, it's, it, you know, fits in that broad, you know, sub 1000, not a middleweight, but considered a middleweight naked bike sort of deal, you know, in, in, in the same leagues as the MT09 SP, KTM 890 
Duke R, uh, Z900 SE, the Triumph Street Triple 765RS, things of that nature. But if you really want to look at direct comparables in terms of actual components, the only true comparison that you're going to find is the Street Triple 765 Moto 2 edition, which is a limited edition from Triumph, comes with clip-on handlebars and celebrates the, the, the brand's involvement in the Moto 2 championship. That bike has the same all-in suspension all around, the same braking stuff, you know, all that good stuff. So in terms of pure spec, a limited edition bike is the only thing that's comparable to this. Every other bike in the class you know, they might have fully adjustable suspension like we see here. They might have stylumpic calipers like we see here, but by and large, you're not getting the same level of suspension that is on the Monster SP. It's just... Clearly, the Monster SP is has got absolutely the specification, you know, up the wazoo. It's as, it's as specced out as it possibly can be, but it's also the most expensive. Yes. All these other bikes that you're mentioning um, are obviously a fair bit bit less expensive true so you know it's it's the same old thing you know you pays your money you takes your choice i don't think we need to yeah. justify the, the cost of it or or not justify it it's just you know it is what it is it seems like a fair price for what you get it's just a question of whether you're prepared to spend that much that's all yeah yeah and that's that's what i'm getting at here you know you you look at the the broader middleweight class and when i say broad i mean it is truly broad um and you have bikes that go as low as, you know, into the low nine grand range. And then up at the top end here, we're up in the $15,000 range. Okay, cool. So it's broad in every single respect. And, you know, save for the, the Street Triple Moto2 edition, this is the most spec'd out bike, you know, up there. And the riding experience kind of mimics that. Excellent. All right. Yeah. But that's kind of the, the Ducati Monster SP in a nutshell. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate the insight as always. It's a really beautiful looking bike. Cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Happy to. All right. See ya. In our second segment, I chat with film writer, producer, and director Mark Neal. Mark is the guy who wrote and directed the series of movies covering MotoGP from the early 2000s onwards. The series started with the iconic documentary Faster and it ended with Hitting the Apex in 2015. Brad Pitt narrated that one and indeed he had a vital hand in getting it finished. Interestingly, the movie is still relevant now, some eight years later, and Mark's stories of how the movie came to be and his interactions with the people and writers involved makes for some entertaining listening. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of riders meets a new generation of supersport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. 
Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. We started filming Hitting the Apex at Kota, where MotoGP will soon be going, in March of 2013. And, and my last shoot was also there in April of 2014. So that was like, you know, I got to know Austin and, and, and that area a, a bit. And uh, given that, and given that it's all starting again, and, and uh, especially, I think, given that, you know, I, I re-watched the film the other day, and of course the only one left out of the six who are the stars of it is Marquez. So I thought, well, you know, I mean, obviously there's a story behind how that film got made and who, who helped me, you know, a lot, of, a lot of help from some very important people. But also what a special time that was, because was, there was Marco's death, there was Rossi's sort of comeback to Yamaha, there was Marquez arriving and Casey Stoner quitting and all of that happened in that kind of two-year period. Obviously, some of it actually before we started filming. But after making Fastest, I had, you know, I, I wanted to have at least one more go at making a film kind of under the conditions that we made Faster, which is to say... I tried getting sponsors involved and we had sponsors for DTK, obviously Red Bull, because that was the Red Bull US Grand Prix in 2005. And they got, you know, they actually contacted me and, and I mean, that was a good experience. And then Fastest was sponsored by Monster Energy. And the, the lure of that, apart from the money, the appeal of having a sponsor like Red Bull or Monster Energy, is that you're going to get access to Rossi, to, you know, Hayden, to the riders that, that you, you otherwise have a very hard time getting into the garages and getting time with them. So I, I sort of tried every way that I could of making a film. And there were benefits of working with sponsors and, and there were drawbacks because, you know, you just get into kind of logo problems, like they, they don't want the other company's logo shown. And uh, anyway, in the end, I don't think it had a terrible effect on, on either of those films, DTK or, or Fastest. But I had some sort of PR damage to repair, but particularly with Casey Stoner, who, who was not at all happy with Fastest. Oh, really? Why, why was that? <laughs> because obviously it was so much about Rossi, which is not a bad thing for most people. You know, the privilege that I had there was having much easier access to Rossi than, than I ever had before or after. But the other riders felt that, you know, because in the previous films I'd done had been more balanced and had given more attention to other riders... Casey basically wouldn't talk to me for the whole time we were making Hitting the Apex. And uh, that's, how I, oh. <laughs> that's how I ended up at Cota in April of 2014, because 
I, I begged and begged um, Reese Edwards, you know, who, who you probably know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he was very, very helpful, very keen to help. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, no, he t- a really good guy. It was, it was always, you know, he, you know, he was always helpful, basically, and, and uh, I very much enjoyed talking to him. And, and he said funny things like, watch Mark as his dad. You know, he's got his fingers crossed for the whole of every session of practice, every race. You try keeping your fingers crossed for more than five minutes. He keeps them crossed like all day, both hands. And anyway, so he pointed out various things that were amusing. But Casey, you know, I told Reese early on, you know, that I would like to talk to him. Obviously, everybody wanted to know why he quit and just know more about it. You know, just talk to him basically about about his last years. And, you know, he'd obviously won another championship. And, and uh, so there was a lot to talk about. But he didn't want to talk to me because he was very angry with what I'd done with Fastest. And, and he told me so in no, no uncertain, very blunt Aussie four-letter words. Oh, man. Uh, which, so I was ready for it because I said to Reese, look, please, you know, tell him that... I mean, we'll have to put a disclaimer on the end of the film saying Casey Stone had declined to be interviewed for this film. Which is terrible because, you know, I, like, we love him and, and he's got to be in it. And, uh, yeah, Reese obviously got, got Casey. To, he just said, like, this will be good. It'll be good. You know, Mark, Mark explained that there were certain limits on what he could do last time. So he, he finally said, OK, Casey's going to go to the Grand Prix at Cota, you know, in April 2014. And he'll talk to you there. And so I went there and Reese said, I don't know when he's going to go there. He's going to, you know, he said he's going to go there. Uh, he, he wants to see the race, and and uh, so I went there, and and he didn't show up, 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 and nobody knew where he was. Oh man! And I, th- I think he was off with some mate, you know, doing some dirt bike riding or something like that. He finally showed up. I, I'd given up hope at that point because you know the race happened. It was the one where Lorenzo jumped the start. You know, the lights came on, and he went. You know, yes, and and. and yeah. uh, I'd set up my camera and it was just me on my own. I'd been in this horrible little motel for like five days, <laughs> and and, uh, and 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 then I just sort of walked out into the into the paddock, and there was Casey Stoner like laughing with Lorenzo after the race about obviously about what had happened. Right. And then he saw me, and I mean, you know, we'd met before. Then he didn't look too happy. He said, "Okay, I'll come. I'm coming. I'm coming." So, so we went into the sort of, I think, I guess it was the Honda Hospitality Unit. And once the door was closed, he told me exactly what he thought of my last film, very bluntly. And I said, I'm very sorry about that, you know. And uh, I'm, this time, nobody's telling me what I can and can't do. And I would really like to talk to you about everything. And, and, and then we had a really nice conversation and after it was all over, I actually saw him in Bologna a couple of years ago. And it was very nice to thank him. And, and Reese had already told me that he was really happy with the film and he really liked it. And okay. so it all worked out well. You should have named the film the Cota Redemption. <laughs> it was good, but, but it just felt insane. I was there. I didn't have anything else to do. I, I kind of didn't have a permit to shoot anything. And by that time, you know, we were well into editing it. And, you know, there was no point in shooting a race that wasn't going to doing anything that wasn't going to be in the film except him. So I decided to, like, because I've been, you know, I went around talking to people just about anything. And I was talking to, to Dainese, 
Somehow the conversation came around to the fact that Barry Sheen had invented the back protector, which Barry Sheen told me in Faster. He said, I got a load of old visors and I set them up so that they bend forwards but not back and I made the first back protector and then I gave yeah. it to Dainese. And I talked to Dainese and they said, yeah, but it was it, it, partly, but it was actually we were already onto the armadillo. We, we, you know, we were studying the armadillo and how its armour worked. So that set me off on a quest to find an armadillo the armadillo, as you probably know, is the state animal of Texas. So, so I thought, oh, it won't be too hard to find one here. And, uh, <laughs> and it was actually very hard. So the, the fun part of my waiting for Casey thing was, was tr- you know, I, I talked to hunters. I, I, you know, I, I, I called zoos and rescue places. And the best advice I got was like, well, you know, they're nocturnal. They're actually quite hard to get. But there's plenty of armadillo roadkill. So, you know, if you want to get a dead armadillo, you'll probably find one, <laughs> which obviously I didn't really want to pick up a piece of roadkill. But they said, yeah, no, the, the armadillos get killed a lot on the roads because the, 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 they're slow. when they're startled, their reaction to make themselves look bigger and more scary to, to an aggressor is to jump in the air. But when they jump in the air, they, they rise to the height of the, you know, the radiator of, a, of an oncoming car or truck oh. and finally in a in a store in a, in a sort of you know an emporium of things in in austin i found a, an armadillo so i took it to dinesi and we filmed the armadillo and that's one of the dvd extras on hitting the apex <laughs> <laughs> anyway but that's my casey stoner armadillo story yeah so so full redemption from one of the most naturally talented riders of all time, I would say. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, everybody sort of seems to agree now just how special he was. And I mean, you think about that, like what if he'd carried on? And I mean, I know Marquez kind of took his place, but just yeah. an amazing rider, amazing. Well, I, I remember his first year at LCR Honda. And actually, I think, I believe that was at the... It, maybe it was at the premiere of Faster that you brought all of those guys out onto stage, including this young Casey Stoner guy who um, had ridden for LCR Honda the previous year. And for whatever reason, the poor guy just basically spent the entire year just crashing his brains out. Do you remember bringing those guys out onto the stage? Yeah, yeah, that was actually the the premiere of the Doctor, the Tornado, and the Kentucky Kid. Okay, that was it. Yeah, you know, at the, at the Paramount Theatre, I think it was in in Hollywood. Yes, that was it. I was there, and I remember. And, and somebody, I forget if it was you, but somebody stood up and said, "And you know, here with us today are you know five of the fastest guys in the world." And I kind of looked at Casey Stoner standing there at the end of the line and I thought, well, that poor guy's going nowhere because he's just a monster crasher. All he does is just crash his freaking brains out and it's just horrifying to watch. Horrifying. I mean, every freaking race, he would just go cartwheeling into some gravel trap and somehow remain uninjured. But at that point, I'm ashamed to say, I mean, it just shows what a hopeless talent spotter I am. I'd rather written him off. And I was like, no, he's not going to go anywhere. He's just going to crash his brains out until finally he retires. And then, of course, the next year, he went to, he went to Ducati, and we all know what happened. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, I, I mean, obviously, afterwards, you kind of hear all these stories. Somebody told me that I think at the pre-season tests, 
that year, that was 2006, he showed up, he like missed a plane or something, and he, he got to the track, literally got to the track, put his leathers on, and I think in the sort of first or second session, he was fastest for the first, you know, he was on that bike for the first time. You know, obviously, then all those things that you're talking about happened as well. And, he, you know, he had all those crashes. And, and uh, right. but, you know, people I've met since have said, no, you know, we kind of we saw right away how incredibly fast he was. But like you say, he, he, you know, he crashed a lot. But then, you know, as in doing hitting the apex and everything, you, 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 like you get video footage from guys who'd filmed him back in Australia when he was a kid and. Not only did he sort of do loads of different races on different bikes in the same weekend, but he one weekend he won, I think, 37 races in one weekend wow. on lots of different bikes. And, and then it's like, oh, right, OK, yeah, obviously he was amazing. But at the time, I guess we didn't know. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So going back to hitting the apex... You've managed to get, you know, various movie stars involved in your in your movies. How on earth did you pull that off? Well, I was well aware that I needed to kind of raise the bar for more than one reason. I mean, what, what I really wanted was was to kind of get the best possible producers, which would be Brad Pitt and his company, Plan B. And um, I felt that that would give me, you know, the best possible support and, and kind of protection as well, because there are always, you know, you, you know any problems that I might have with Dorna or with Universal who were paying for it. You know, I was in a different arena compared to the previous productions where a major Hollywood studio was paying for the production and there were, you know, there was a very heavy contract and a very strict deadline and... It's hard to find a good producer. I've, I've had difficult experiences with producers in the past. So I went after to Brad, I, you know, I, and I knew that he was a fan of Faster. Of, of, you know, friends of mine knew him. That, that didn't really help me to get to him. I had to approach him myself, get in touch with his company, write to them, explain what I was doing. By the time that we started production, it wasn't guaranteed that he would be involved but it, it, it looked very possible. And he was watching what I was doing. You know, a, a couple of times I was able to show him some, some of the material, but I didn't actually meet him in person until very late in the day, you know, like when we'd nearly finished. And, and I was in trouble um, with Universal because I was late. And then the Brad effect kicked in and he saved me and got, got us more time and a bit more money. And, <laughs> you know, that... Without him, that film wouldn't exist. It's as simple as that. I, I, you know, I, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. They, I mean, because they... like that, The dark side of the story is, is that, that when you do a deal with the studio, even though the budget was very low compared to prop, you know, real movie budgets, they make you take out a kind of insurance policy with a company that act as their kind of minders who make sure that you stay on budget and on schedule... I couldn't do the schedule, and I told them all along I'm going to need more time. And then in the, in the end, they basically refused to give me more time, and at that point, they were going to take the film away, finish it themselves, which would have been disastrous, and in the end, nobody would have got anything good out of it. And, and uh, fortunately, Brad Pitt was, at that point, you know, swung into action. There's no point in trying to convey how horrible that was because you've worked for years to do this thing. It's your big moment. You've got a big star involved and a studio who will release the thing all around the world 
so you've sort of you've got where you wanted to be, but at the same time, you've you, you know you're dealing with the reality of a gigantic corporation that doesn't care really how good it is; they just want it out per their schedule before the end of the year. And you know, do, I mean, no, Dawn wouldn't have agreed to it. It wouldn't have. I mean, it would it, it would have been a bad film at that point. So these things, I think, happen all the time. Most films, many films, like they, I was told that sixty or seventy percent of films need more time. And unfortunately, Universal thought that it would kind of be out of date, which, which, which it isn't. I mean, it's not just about it's not a season review, um, but it was that was kind of their attitude. So, you know, obviously, Brad wasn't there in my mind as a as a bodyguard for the project, but but that's what he became at that point. And like, then everyone in the end was really happy, obviously. But but man, there were some dark days and nights. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But um, I mean, the way that he got involved was that thing of there's a bunch of actors and musicians and and kind of cool people who who like motorcycle racing and motorbikes. And I always knew that that Brad, you know, could be into it. And it turned out, you know, that that, that he was. And furthermore, that he and his producers you know, brought a lot to the project in terms of, like, putting the emphasis on making a good film and telling the story really well and making it something that would be accessible and interest people beyond the, you know, the fans who, who were kind of going to like it anyway. But, you know, you make it appeal to, to their families and their mums and dads and, and kids and stuff. And so that was the goal. And, and they really helped, not just Brad, but, but his, the, the, the other producers... Didi Gardner and Sarah Esberg, which was good. Having you know, having very experienced women producers was a different perspective. So I mean, it was a brilliant experience. In the end, you know, I ended up moving into you know the the Plan B Studios, which is in sort of old Hollywood, just off Melrose, and it's the studios that used to be the the Lucy Show Studios. So I was working in a room where the the guys who wrote the Lucy shows used to write, and downstairs we were up on you know the first floor, and and downstairs on the soundstage Tarantino was filming the the Hateful Eight. So you'd sort of go out for a break downstairs, and there'd be all these you know actors in costume wandering around, you know, waiting for their scenes, and it was such a trip the whole thing. Um, so I was there for like three months. We all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's awesome. So obviously one of the subjects was Marco Simoncelli and and you know the the whole sad thing. But interestingly, I mean he's still relevant today. I mean actually the Moto3 race from this weekend, you know, his dad was on the grid with his, you know, team 58 and you know and the two Moto3 riders his actually Actually, Paolo Simicelli was, you know, holding the umbrella for one of the yeah, riders. Yeah, yeah, it's The umbrella girl. It's <laughs> so still very much a racing, you know, relevance. And nobody's forgotten Marco at all. I mean, it's nice to see how, how that's held on. What was sort of any of the story behind that? Well, well, I mean, meeting Paolo was, I mean, that was the hardest, in, you know, that, that was the hardest interview that I've ever done because it was... You know, not very long after Mar Marco had died, it was in the middle of 2013. And I guess it was around the time of the Mazzano race, so it would actually be September. 
Aldo Drudy, the, the graphic designer who does all Rossi's you know, helmets and all, of, all, all those things that we recognise Rossi by, he introduced me to Paolo. I'd been in touch with Paolo actually just after Marco died because we just finished Fastest and, and, and I was in Italy and I, and I went to see him, but he was not there. But I, you know, I talked to him on the phone then. And so I'd been in touch, but, but uh, I'd never met him. And anyway, uh, Aldo's, you know, just arranged for us to meet and, and uh, we went to the Marco Simoncelli Foundation is in a building in, in Riccione, which is where Aldo's offices are too. So very near here, very near Mazzano. And, and, and I went in there and it was like, it was like a Marco Simoncelli sort of exhibition. There were all these objects, photographs, sculptures, paintings that fans had sent. And, and you know, it was just think of a, like a big, you know, storage unit full of basically homemade, handmade Marco memorabilia that people had sent him and, and kept sending him. And he just looked around, he said, it's amazing. People just keep sending me stuff, to, you know, because I'm just beginning to realise how much people loved him. And he sat on it. Somebody had made like a garden bench for him with a Marco painted on it. And, and so he sat on, the, on this Marco bench talking to me. And then we talked about it all. And uh, it was terribly difficult to do, talking about the thing that obviously we included in the film is... is Paolo mentioning how, you know, that the acronym for the Sepang International Circuit is SIC, which is the same as Marco's nickname, and which was which is Sich, pronounced Sich, but SIC. And and he said the first time we went there, you know, we bought all the T-shirts from the circuit because they had SIC on them, which is Marco's nickname. And then he explained that this is the track where kind of all the big things had happened. He'd won the 250cc title there. He'd set the fastest lap in pre-season testing there in 2011, the year that he died. And, and obviously he, he died there. Um, so it was very heavy. It was really hard to do and not cry, basically. And so at the, at the end of it, in order to sort of stop, stop ourselves crying, we started talking about the team that you mentioned. And, and, uh, and it was like, oh, God, let's, do, you know, uh, let, let, let's talk about something happy, you know. And... Uh, and he said, yeah, well, it's the first year. I'll see how, you know, how it goes. And lo and behold, like you say, you know, 10 years on, he's still doing it. And um, I mean, I, I know, you know, he wants to end up back in MotoGP if he can. So he's, he's, he's not giving up at all. And, and like you say, you go there and, and uh, it's like, you know, you never lose sight of Marco, especially here, um, because the circuit's named in his honour as well. Yeah, that I met Paolo then, and 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 I, and I, you know, still see him. I do. It has kind of given him a new lease of life. I mean, he loves racing, and he's he's a great father figure. Obviously, he was very actively involved in Marco's career, and and so he's a great guy to have as your mentor if you're a you know a young rider. So he's doing all right. He's he's been through obviously hell, but he's he's doing okay, and and he still loves racing, and people really love him. The other thing that happened that involving Marco that, that year at Mizano was Rossi wore that Pink Floyd-inspired crash helmet with the artwork of Wish You Were Here on it. So that, then obviously, you know, you naturally think, oh, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could get the Pink Floyd music? And then you think, I wonder how much that costs 
because it's really, you know, obviously it, it, it's not going to be cheap. Yeah, that's not going to be cheap. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we like I keep, you know, like I say, we didn't have a big budget, and uh, I and I happened to interview Graziano Rossi that day, and and you know he said he, he mentioned like I you know I love Valentino's helmet, so I said yeah I, I mean wouldn't it be great if we could get the music I'll try and get it, I thought God am I how will I do it. And uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, please, please, please. Like, anyway. So what? So then, what happened? In this, to cut a long story short, was I remembered that, that a friend of mine, a biker, like, and, and it's always the the sort of biker mafia. The, the friend of mine called James, who who's worked with Pink Floyd for years, he's an engineer. So I got in touch with him, and he said, well, I can't. I'm not. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a manager or whatever. So you need to talk to the management. So I went off and I talked. You know, he's just he need, you need to talk to so and so. And they've got the, you know, there's like a manager for the for the band, and there's another one manager for Dave Gilmore, and one manager for Rog, one for Roger Waters. You know, you've got to clear it with all these people. They don't necessarily talk to each other very much. You know, Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters famously, I think, don't talk to each other anymore, and they both wrote the song. So you've got to clear it with all of those people, and you've got to pay for publishing and and recording. And the first figure I got was like thirty thousand dollars for part of it. And so it was, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, this is going to, I can't do this. It's going to cost 50 grand or 80 grand or something. So I talked to James and he said, well, you know, can you send me a bit of video or something? So I sent him a bit of video and he happened to be able to show it to Roger Waters along with various other things they were doing. And then he didn't hear anything. And then, and then he spoke to Roger Waters sometime later who, who said, oh, by the way, I really like that, that Valentino Rossi thing. What is that? And James t- told him. So basically, we got an incredible deal, and and we gave a hefty donation to the Marco Simoncelli Foundation, in, in, and and paid Pink Floyd oh, wow. almost nothing. And so then the beautiful thing of telling you know Paolo, and the and Kate, who was you know the, Marco's girlfriend, there's a chunk of money coming to you from you know from Pink Floyd. And uh, that was very, very beautiful. Wow, that's incredible. What a cool story. That is awesome. And it, I mean, it's just fantastic. So, like, you know, the bad stuff happens, but the good things outnumber the bad so much. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, if you'd had the money and would have just licensed the track, it actually wouldn't have been as, as interesting or as cool. <laughs> yeah, no, truly, truly. I mean, it was, it was brilliant. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. And then, and then, and when you put the pictures together with the music, I mean, it was just, it's just amazing. And the, like the fact that Rossi should even wear that helmet with Wish You Were Here painted on it, that was just one of those situations where everything came together and with some help from, from friends and always the biker element, you know, friends who are bikers, you know, who, who turn out to work in worlds that you don't think you'll get involved in, but one day Pink Floyd you know are people you really need to talk to and you you happen to know somebody who rides a motorbike who works with them (laughs) (laughs) it's funny how when the universe wants something to happen it finds a way doesn't it it's brilliant amazing yeah yeah that's really cool so you're talking about the sound and the fury what's that about well it's literally about the sound of the the film you know one of the things that's really hard to do and obviously, if you watch the races on TV, you, you know they don't do it. It's, it's like hear what those things sound like. And 
you never get it off the TV. There's nothing... I mean, have you been to a race and stood in, you know, pit lane or, or stood by the track when they're going past at 200 miles an hour and heard how incredibly loud and, and how it's really shocking when you get really close to the riders and they scream past in a pack, you know, the, the, and, the, and the ground shakes and the air vibrates and your body trembles and you, you yeah. can't translate that you can't get it on screen you know no matter how you try and we but but we made you know really good sound recordings which unfortunately by the time these things get finished you know and you watch it on your computer you know on, on netflix or amazon or whatever it's a compressed signal and it, you know it doesn't sound bad but the thing that i'm selling today that i'm promoting is the fact that we ourselves after we had delivered the film to Universal, after they threatened to kill us for being late and everything, we then carried on for another month. Friends of mine, Tom and Andy, who do most of the music on all my films, had met one of the top Hollywood sound designers and talked her and another sound mixer, sound designer called Cameron Frankly, into helping us. And I've got to say that the Brad Pitt card helped there, because if you say you're doing a movie with Brad Pitt, people will help you. And, 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 right, and, and, sure. <laughs> and, and so with Anna Belmer, who's won Oscars for, for mixing and sound design, and, and Cameron... Frankly, we, we ended up in the, the Technicolor soundstage, which is, I mean, it's literally like being in a cathedral. It's gigantic. And um, it's on the Paramount lot. It's, it's like, you know, a Hollywood soundstage, except it's, it's super high-tech sound studio, but it's enormous. And you watch your film on a, you know, like an IMAX screen, and you've got, like, every possible speaker configuration in the world. And I, I just wish everybody could have seen the film in there because it just sounded phenomenal. And um, that mix ended up on the special edition, the collector's edition, three-disc Blu-ray DVD, which for anybody who still has a Blu-ray player or DVD player, you can find on our, on our website, fastermovies.com. So if you go to fastermovies.com, we've got about... 900 of these things left because we had a load made and and then we, we didn't sell them for another reason um, so we've sat on them for a while and and now as a part of the process of going through everything we've got what have we got oh, some t-shirts we've got various bits of bits and pieces of merchandise <laughs> but we found that the, you know this treasure of like almost a thousand of these dvds and blu-rays at that point, you know, I was just sort of crazily continuing to make the film, even though we delivered it to Universal, because I wanted to make it as good as I possibly could. And so the only way to get the film in, in its final, final, final version is, is this way. You know, if there's a huge demand for it, because we're, we're also wondering, is like, well, does anybody buy these things anymore? But presumably there are collectors out there who, who you know, who like to have everything. So we're going to see. I mean, so it, it, we may end up making some more, but right, but right now it's like, oh wow, you know, it's it's five years, seven years since it was released. We pulled it in the first place because Universal just, I mean, not I, I must say some good things about them. They're 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 very nice in many ways, but they also released a a Blu-ray which was uh, not region coded. So although they didn't have the rights to sell it in America, it came to America. 
three months before ours was released. So everybody bought theirs. And that doesn't have the finished mix on it. It has the universal mix on it. So our one is now available again. So, you know, if people want it, they can they can buy it. So although it's not a director's cut, it's a director's soundtrack then? Yeah, I mean, so you, you can call it a director's cut because, I mean, you know, the, the sound is terribly important. And yeah, the picture hasn't changed. So if you've seen the film already, you, you know, you've seen the film, but you haven't kind of heard it in, in the best possible way. And, and obviously that might not matter to everyone, but it does sound fantastic. And yeah, it's the... It's, it was just such a great thing to finish it, even though it was kind of crazy. And that was the sort of fury part of it. It's like, damn it, I'm just going to carry on. <laughs> as long as, you know, these, these lovely people in Hollywood are helping us, you know, I'm going to take all the help I can get. And uh, it was brilliant. I mean, it's like you edit it and then, you know, you do the soundtrack and, and you know, having cut it, it's like you mow the lawn and then you go back with, with nail scissors and and trim it blade by blade and then you go back with a nail file and you know, <laughs> do a bit more i mean it becomes kind of insanely microscopically focused but the more you do it the more you go over it the better it gets and so it was brilliant that's the only time in my life that i've had that opportunity to make one where I, and at the end it's like uh, that's great we could go on forever but but there's no point at this point so, and it was just that thing of like, you, you just want to make it as good as you possibly can. And if you've got the help that I was getting at that point, it you know, it was just wonderful. I mean, the end of that, finishing that thing was just a dream. It really was. Wow. Well, okay. I mean, thank you very much. I mean, you've definitely uh, piqued my interest and inspired me to watch the uh, the Blu-ray or listen to the Blu-ray version of Hitting the Apex. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, you know, if you've got a decent system, but I mean, even so, I know that the other day that I said I don't have a Blu-ray player, but I actually do have a little one that I can connect to my computer. And even just that, I mean, the picture quality is significantly better than than you get on Apple TV or however you get it online, stream it or download it. It's not as good. And it's just like, whoa, we've got used to sound on our telephones, which is rubbish and and stuff on, you know, streaming, which isn't that great. So it even the pictures are significantly better. Are you casting aspersions on the sound quality of this podcast? <laughs> no, no. That, that's why I'm recording it separately here with this very good microphone. We do our best, and it is acceptable, but it's definitely, you know, questionable. And, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I hear you. You know, when you hear something that is recorded properly in a studio and, you know, with a level of sound design and what have you, it's it is noticeable the difference and it, it would be cool to hear it yeah no it really does make a difference yeah well if you could men- if you could mention to brad pitt that we need help with producing this podcast i'm sure we'd be able to <laughs> yeah. quality up yeah 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 <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, next time i see him I'll, I'll 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 tell him that yeah thanks yeah no and obviously i'm still here in italy and one of the things that I, with our, our our mutual friend george beavers talking of getting close to the action and being close to the motorbikes and hearing how things really sound we we want to start doing a few tours bring a few groups of people from america who want to come and experience various racing not just moto gp but italian championships and there's many different forms of racing here like i was saying to you before and you know riding mini motorbikes and go-karts and all that stuff there's there's if you like motorsports this is the best bit of Italy to come to. So um, 
George said that he's going to be posting information on Moto California, which is his website, motocalifornia.com. We'll post that link in the show notes as well. I know this area and I know a lot of people well and, and places to go and fun to have and food to eat and everything. So um, you'll have to come over. Would love to. Would love it, Let's do it. Hey, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.